Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. The Buck Sexton Show. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Thank you for calling the White House. Unfortunately, we cannot answer your call today because congressional Democrats are holding government funding, including funding for our troops and other national security priorities, hostage to an unrelated immigration debate. Due to this obstruction, the government is shut down. In the meantime, you can leave a comment for the president at www.whitehouse.gov forward slash contact. I love it. I look forward I- to taking your calls as soon as the government reopens. <laughs> I love it, everybody. Buck Sexton here. That was on the White House voicemail system during the now already over government shutdown. But that is a snapshot of why this ended the way that it did. The Democrats cave. Why would the Democrats cave? Well, because their plan going into this was we're going to win the public debate. We're going to be the ones that are able to convince the American people that it's the Republicans' fault even though we're doing it. This was Democrats burglarizing a house, so to speak, and screaming about how other people are stealing stuff while they go through the window. It could not have been more clear that this was on the Democrats. But they assumed, with the help of the media, and in no small part because of hashtag resistance to Trump, Trump derangement syndrome, and, let's be honest, a lack of some degree of civics knowledge in the Democrat and general public, that they could come out on top of this whole fiasco. And yet, that was not the case. Here's Chuck Schumer, who had to go out there and tell people that, sure enough, the Senate voted to reopen the government. I've been having conversations with the Republican leader over the weekend about a path forward. After several discussions, offers, counteroffers, the Republican leader and I have come to an arrangement. We will vote today to reopen the government to continue negotiating a global agreement with the commitment that if an agreement isn't reached by February the 8th, the Senate will immediately proceed to consideration of legislation dealing with DACA. There you have it from Chuck Schumer himself. 81 to 18, the vote was held in the Senate and the government is uh, on its way to being open again. There's a few more procedural steps, but, you know, who cares? The Senate was the problem. A breathtaking step of arrogance here from Democrats thinking that they could filibuster, filibuster a budgetary measure and still convince people that it wasn't their doing. Right. And, And that was where this all just was too much. And I would note that I think Trump was the X factor here. Trump got out there on Twitter. Trump was saying how they're putting citizens above 
non-citizens Mike Pence making the case in in very effective terms during the course of this shutdown that this was the Democrats prioritizing illegal aliens. And I love it when Democrats challenge me like, they're not illegal aliens, they're dreamers. Well, actually, the technical legal term is illegal alien. Dreamers is a made up PR term. Uh, But Mike Pence pointed out that there was a very clear choice being made here by the Democrats. On the one hand, you had illegal aliens. On the other, you had funding for our military. You know, I'm sure you're all aware of what's going on in Washington, D.C. Despite bipartisan support for a budget resolution, a minority in the Senate has decided to play politics with military pay. But you deserve better. You and your family shouldn't have to worry for one minute about whether you're going to get paid as you serve in the uniform of the United States. So know this, your president, your vice president, and the American people are not going to put up with it. So there you have it. Laying it down. Won this fight because Trump and his top people know that this is a political street fight. That the Democrats aren't doing this out of some noble conception of what we owe to dreamers. And that's all just that's all just part of the propaganda. You see, for the Democrat Party, the issue of DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, is really just the first step to amnesty and a critical one. In fact, DACA would likely give the Democrats a momentum that would make full on amnesty inevitable, absent very clear steps by the government on enforcement, on building a wall, e-verify. There's a whole list that I've been talking to you about. And even then, we'd have to hold them to account and be careful about what the future holds. But just DACA with a little bit more funding for already existing Border Patrol measures and Immigrations and Customs Enforcement is a joke. It's not going to do anything. In fact, you can already see there has been a surge in illegal crossings at the border. Yes, people would say part of this is driven by the economy, right? But, I mean, technically, I think you can buy Bitcoin anywhere in the world, right? So there's, there's ways to get it on the economy no matter where you are. Um, that's changing very rapidly. Kind of kidding there about Bitcoin. But the truth is that many people realize that you want to be here before. Many illegals realize that you want to be in the country before the amnesty because then you're going to be part of the next wave. You'll be an addendum to DACA. You'll be not just DAPA, but then it will be deferred action for really nice people who are part of the American dream, whatever that acronym is, because that's what the Democrats are going to say until they get to the 11 million. And this is what matters to them. The 11 million people who would be permanent residents on their way to getting citizenship. And remember, the citizenship component of it, you could say they won't be citizens, but Democrats will continue to fight until they make them citizens. Right? They'll make sure that the pathway that would be open to them once permanent residency occurs for illegal aliens, they'll make sure that there's a pathway to citizenship because then Democrats win on every issue. If you think about this in terms of just, oh, they're trying to they're trying to do this for the base. This is about getting enthusiasm going from the left wing for the midterms. You're missing, I think, the bigger picture. You're missing what's really at stake. If they win on amnesty, if the Democrats win on amnesty, they view it as 
they will then win on everything else. Amnesty leads to abortion on demand always and forever because of the way the legislative and electoral, uh, because of the implications for our legislative system and the electoral college. They will win on the size of government. They will win on border security. They will win on socialism. They will win and win and win. You might even say they will get tired of winning at some point. They just have to win on this. They are changing the American electorate. Now, people would say, Buck, but can't we, if you brought in, uh, if you brought in these illegal, well, not brought them in, if you legalized these illegals and gave them citizenship, can't conservatives make the case about limited government? Can't we give them, you know, some copies of the road to serfdom and maybe some some Hayek and uh, you know, that is Hayek, but some Milton Friedman. And, can't we do that? You know, hand them Bastiat's The Law, see if they read that and take some important, uh, important notes about what governments should really be all about and like? The answer is, well, you're going to have a whole group of people that understandably and largely correctly attribute their permanent status, a very valuable and precious thing, attribute their status to the Democrat Party. You will have generations of then Latino Americans, currently illegal aliens, who would be voting for the Democratic Party out of a sense of fealty and obligation. And I'm not going to say that I can't understand where that comes from because the Democrats would have said, forget about the law. We we're going to we're going to change the law specifically for you. They're not changing the law for everybody. There's still an immigration system. There's still all kinds of hurdles and challenges in place for people that want to come in legally. But we are talking overwhelmingly about immigration from Latin America and specifically from Mexico. Mexico accounts for. Something along the lines of 70 or 80 percent of the illegal immigrant population in the country right now. Let's call it roughly 80 percent. So that's what's really going on here. This is not a diverse population of illegals. That's not that's not what's at issue. You're talking primarily and predominantly about Mexican illegal immigration into the United States and all of the cultural and political changes that that would bring with it if there was an Across-the-board legalization. It is an all-in all issue for the Democrat Party. If they win on this, they win on everything else. That's why, they, that's why you get Chuck Schumer trying to do this. I, yeah, I think, that they, uh, I think that they overplayed their hand or, or maybe just poorly played their hand. I, I think that they were overestimating their ability to make the case because they don't have some... Uh, Republican who's afraid of his shadow in office right now. They, they don't have a, a, a moderate GOP who's going to be sitting in the White House saying, you know, yeah, you know, maybe maybe the media can just lie about this as much as they want. I think that Trump has been an important X factor in all this. We've got to talk more about what happens next, though, because this is just a delay. It's really what I told you was going to happen all along. Remember in the week leading up to the shutdown? I said that they're just going to move this and we'll have the debate later. Well, they shut the government down for three days. Really just they sh- <laughs> it was actually just a weekend. They didn't really shut anything down. Right. But they, they shut the government down technically for a few days. And now the government's about to open back up a little later on a Monday. It's like they had a holiday, really. And we're supposed to have the debate later on about 
immigration in a few weeks. And part of how we got to this point is that the Republicans have said to the Democrats that they are going to take action on the issue of the Dreamers. So now, the next time around, Democrats may be able to make a stronger case for forcing the issue. And I'm not sure where Republicans are on this one. We are not out of the woods yet, as they say, my friends. There's a lot of fight left to go. Uh, We're going to get into that and more coming up uh, this hour and over the course of the show. We will talk more about the uh, Schumer shutdown. The Dems lost this one. Also, the FISA memo. Uh, I've got some updates for you on that. The FBI seems to have misplaced some text messages between some senior agents or a senior DOJ lawyer and an FBI agent. Peter Strzok, we've all come to know because of his insurance policy comment about President Trump. The FBI, for about five months, lost the text messages between these two. That that seems a bit strange, doesn't it? Ah, that's right, strange, that is. We should take a look at that. We'll talk about it. Also, Turkey engaged in a military incursion into Syria against our Kurdish allies. My friends, the Kurds are the reason that ISIS has been annihilated in Syria particularly, but also They're very helpful in Iraq. But in Syria, it's been the Kurdish ground force that has defeated ISIS with U.S. military power in the air and assorted advisors and and other assistance for them. But it has been the Kurds. And right now the Turks are shelling them. And this could further destabilize an already nightmarish situation in Syria. Not a lot of other folks talking about this because they're so invested in the latest moment-to-moment update on the shutdown, but this is this is a, a big problem for us. Turkey's a large NATO ally country with considerable military force at its disposal, and if it is going after one of ours, meaning Kurdish allies of the United States government, we got to do something about that. I'll get into why later on. So we, we got a we got a jam-packed show. That much I can promise you. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. Team, it is Monday. It is good to be back, and I am excited to get a chance to hang out with you. So uh, stay right there. In regards to the government shutdown, we are pleased to see Senator Schumer accept the deal that President Trump put on the table from the very beginning, which was to responsibly fund the government and debate immigration as a separate issue. I have a statement here from the President of the United States that I will read. Quote, I am pleased that Democrats in Congress have come to their senses and are now willing to fund our great military, border patrol, first responders, and insurance for vulnerable children. As I've always said, once the government is funded, my administration will work towards solving the problem of very unfair illegal immigration. All right, so Sarah Huckabee Sanders is pleased that uh, Schumer's taking the deal. And right now I got some breaking news for you. Trump's about to sign it. Sign the bill ending the shutdown. This whole shutdown drama nonsense is crazy, isn't it? It's really a sign. It's a symptom of the dysfunction of our federal government in D.C. It's not in any way, I think, confidence inspiring that we could spend so much time and have such a spirited and even nasty back and forth between Democrats and Republicans on what? On this It's a waste. It's a waste. Um, But a part a a 
big part of this, I believe, is that no one really knows what the DACA bill is supposed to, or is going to be. And they're all, I mean, I mean, no one, I mean in the Congress, and they're trying to position themselves for that. They're not really sure about what's going to happen with the bill. I have my own concerns. You know, you got like Lindsey Graham, for example, who, I don't know, some of you probably think he's great. I, I find him 75% of the time unhelpful and annoying. That's just, that's just like my opinion, man. But I find him to be, generally speaking, not a voice from the right that is constructive, useful, or particularly insightful at all. Um, and here's what he had to say on the immigration issue. I've talked with the president. His heart is right on this issue. I think he's got a good understanding of what will sell. And every time we have a proposal, it is only yanked back by staff members. Um, as long as Stephen Miller is in charge of negotiating immigration, we're going nowhere. He's been an outlier for years. There's a deal to be had. What is the deal? They will talk about this like it's obvious or like we should somehow understand. What is this deal to be had? Because I, as I have been telling you, and I, I'm, I am right on this one. Amnesty for DACA means amnesty for a lot more than DACA. And if you don't, if you haven't extracted concessions on immigration at that point, think about what the negotiation really is here, folks. With Trump, you have a president who beat all the odds. Beat, I don't have to get into all that. You know that, right? But you have this president, this political force of nature who rocketed to the front of the GOP ranks during the primary on the issue of immigration. You have a president in his first, well, beginning his second year now, but you know, early on in his presidency, has the House, has the Senate. And Democrats are pushing out there the DACA issue because it is their most effective bargaining tool. It is the one area of immigration where people, including a lot of Republicans I know, are at least sympathetic to it. And I understand that. Right. The case that they illustrate somebody who came here as a child, you have sympathy doesn't mean that there are no legal consequences, everybody. I'd have sympathy for a kid who lost his house because dad was involved in a stock insider trading scheme. But you know what? They're going to take his house. But nonetheless, at least there is sympathy for it. But when you see all these different pieces lining up, you have a president who has been more forthright and, yes, tougher on illegal immigration than any of his predecessors by a mile, who won the presidency in large part because of his stance on immigration, with senior advisors, well, at least in the case of Miller, who understand the issue and expect real results. They're not going to play some game with this. Democrats are offering up their most potent pro-amnesty weapon, DACA. You better get the best stuff you can get right away. Do we think it's going to get easier in a year or two years? What if the midterms goes against us? Folks, nothing less than full-scale amnesty hangs in the balance of whatever happens with this DACA negotiation coming up here. Do not forget it. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. 
The difference between Lindsey Graham and Steve King is that Steve King can actually win an election in Iowa. In 2016, we had a presidential campaign. Donald Trump won our party's nomination. Lindsey Graham didn't even make it to the starting line. The American people have made it clear, certainly Republican voters have made it clear, that they want Donald Trump's approach to immigration, which is strong on our border and focused on American workers when it comes to legal immigration, but also being generous to the DACA population, giving them legal protections. So you have Senator Cotton talking about the difference between the Trump approach and the Lindsey Graham approach to immigration. I'm, I'm telling you, everybody, I uh, this this is this is the issue. This is the issue. Um, the best deal they're ever going to get, meaning the best deal Republicans are ever going to get on immigration has to be now. If there's going to be a deal at all. But, you know, if you wait. Then at some point you may have Democrats who are just writing and rewriting the laws as they see fit and you'll have amnesty. Isn't it interesting, though? Why did Obama? Let's just step back for a second. Why was it that President Obama had to rely on executive amnesty, meaning that an executive order was given by the former president for DACA and DAPA when there were at least the first two years of Obama's presidency, they had the House and the Senate? They didn't even push the issue. Yes, I know they went with Obamacare instead. But don't you get the sense that Democrats don't really want to have to vote on this thing unless they have Republicans giving them cover because amnesty is not popular with the American people. And all the polls you'll see on this are reflections of the intent and the propagandistic efforts of the particular pollster. Meaning that when you say, do you think that we should find a pathway for the very kind law abiding uh, people in this country who don't have legal status, but really just want to work hard and live the American dream? Yes or no? People are going to say yes. When you ask the question, there are 11 million people who broke the law to come into this country. Should we just forget about the whole thing and let them stay forever? Maybe make them citizens? The answer that people give, and I mean all Americans when polled, is Overwhelmingly, no. It is overwhelmingly no. In fact, interesting, from uh, Harvard, I just saw this now, there's a poll out that shows, this is a Harvard-Harris poll, 79% of those polled oppose chain migration. Think about what chain migration means in practice, everyone. An individual manages to get into the country, and then the individual can sponsor the rest of his or her family to come into the country, and that's primarily how we do it, which means that for each person that is brought into the United States under the current immigration system, it's really a 5X situation, right? I mean, I, for, I don't know. Don't quote me on that. I'm just giving you a sense of what this means, but it's a factor of several times whatever that whoever that, that individual is. You're not letting in one person. You're really letting in a few, four, five, maybe ten, who knows, over the course of... A few years, because it's not that chain migration is a possibility. It's a majority of the immigration into the country. And it's an end run then on all of the different policies that we have in place or all the different ideas that we should have made into policy. That are concerned first and foremost with a merit based immigration system. Chain migration needs to end. I would note that has to be a part of the DACA. Of any DACA deal, too. 
I wonder. By the way, I, I gave you a number before, and I like to be as accurate as I can. I said that, what, 70 or 80 percent of illegal immigrants in the country uh, are here from Mexico. And I, I did some digging in the break to make sure my numbers were correct. And I was close, but a little high because I was adding in my mind Central American countries into the equation as well. And that's a statistic that I've seen, which is that when you add Central America and Mexico together, you're looking at about 70 to 80 percent of the overall illegal alien population of the United States. Mexico, if, if you believe the number is 11 million, and you know, it, seems like, it seems low to me just because it's been 11 million for over a decade, and I don't believe this inflow-outflow analysis that you see from people, but you got about 6 million illegal alien Mexicans in the United States and 750,000 illegal Guatemalan uh, illegal alien Guatemalans in the United States, uh, 465,000, so about half a million El Salvadorans and about four or 500,000 Hondurans in the country illegally. Dwarfs every other, uh, those are by far the biggest in terms of illegal alien population in the United States. So it's really a Mexico and Central America issue. It's not a global issue. It's not that we've got people from all over the world who want amnesty, although that's true, too. You've got about all other countries added together, maybe two million. Uh, India, China, Korea, the Philippines, they all have substantial numbers of illegal aliens in the country, but they're a lot further away, a lot harder to get here. Proximity and geography are key in the illegal immigration issue. We understand this. It's quite clear why, because our southern border is... The primary point of entry for illegals. I know half a million visa overstays a year. That also has to be dealt with. That's why you need workplace enforcement. But with more robust interior enforcement of immigration laws, the visa overstay issue would also be dealt with. But at the end of the day, it has to be, look, we're not going to let people stay who aren't allowed to be here. Or else anybody who wants to can just show up and stay. That's not the way this country is going to function, or at least if the Republicans can man up here, show some uh, stiffened spines, then I think that we can get closer to an immigration system that is rule of law and that benefits Americans first. We're a very diverse country in this con- in, in America, as you know. We've got you know people from all over the world living here already. Right? We've got people from all, which is great, all different ethnicities and backgrounds and religions and everything else. Fine, great. We need to be putting the interests of all those folks, American citizens, ahead of all the foreigners. And and I know it's unfair. Life is unfair. The world is unfair. Right. It's not about fair. It's about sovereignty and the future of this country. And America does a lot of great things for the rest of the world in, in ways that we can't even begin to quantify. If this place turns into some corrupt decrepit hellhole and it's happened to you know other countries that were at the top of their game right it's happened in other places roman empire byzantine empire you know the uk kind of handed over the torch of western civilization to us nicely but you know it's, it's happened in other countries that they went into a period of decay and decline other empires so it's not impossible here and the, the country is changing very very rapidly as we all know all right uh, i just want to give you those numbers though. so yeah six million illegal alien Mexican immigrants in the country or illegal alien Mexicans in the country and about 3 million uh, 
roughly Central America. So it's like nine of the 11 are from Mexico and Central America. It's a lot. Janice in Boston, got some thoughts. Good good of you to call in, Janice. Hi, good to talk to you, Buck. Um, I think you kind of just answered my first question, which I wanted to know if you had a sense of, of how Americans feel, because last week everyone in Washington kept telling us that the American people support giving amnesty to DACA, 70%, and it seemed like people on both sides of the aisle were saying that, and I don't know if they really believe it, but from what you just said, you you don't think that that's true, <laughs> that the American people support it. I I mean, I'm in Massachusetts. I don't know anyone <laughs> who isn't a liberal, so it's hard to, for me to judge what the rest of the country thinks. Well, it, it all, when you say what the rest of the country, um, what the rest of the country thinks on this, it depends on what the question is that's being asked. Right. Yeah. Okay. You know, and and the way the Democrats play the game is they say it's only going to be eight hundred thousand, the people that are in the DACA program. That's it. But we know that's a lie. They already tried DAPA, and they tried that with executive order. So President Trump, I mean, uh, President Obama, when he was in office, just said, you know what? I'm just going to decide that we're going to give legal status to the parents. Remember, you know, most folks, two parents, right? To the parents of each DACA DACA recipient or a person that is covered under the DACA program, which then made it go from 800,000 to three or four million. And, you know, once you get to three or four million, you're going to have all these other people that say, hold on a second. I'm in the country illegally. I want to be covered under these programs, too. And you can say, well, but that's not right because they don't. Yeah, but who's going to adjudicate that? And anytime you're going to start enforcing, you know, let's say you, you up workplace enforcement, you start enforcing immigration law, you're going to have people that the first thing they do when they go in front of a judge is say, oh, but I'm I'm actually a DAPA, you know, DACA person. They say, well, where where are your where's your proof? Or where, and they say, well, you know, I'm working on it. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? It, it They use the seams in the system as a means of overriding the system. And that's what's going to happen. So it's well, not. Did you? I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, Lindsey Graham's bill last week. I was trying to find out this bill that was so reasonable. What was in it? And he was he wanted amnesty for all dreamers, not just DACA. From what I read. Well, well, and, DACA is dreamers, but DAPA is the parents of dreamers. So I, the way I look at it, DACA is a subset of dreamers. So all DACA are dreamers, but not all dreamers are DACA. Is that? Oh well, okay. Yes, they, well, see, this this is an important wanted, dis- no. This is an important distinction, Janice. Some pe- get- hold on a second. Some people um, would technically qualify for DACA, but did not apply, and they would say it's because they were afraid if the federal government knew their status, it could be used against them. So that will also be so. You have eight hundred thousand people that are in DACA, but the number of those who would technically fall under the guidelines is considerably larger. How much larger? We don't really know. But we do know there were individuals that did not give their information or at least will claim they did not give their information because they had concerns of the federal government. The point is that DACA gets a lot larger, a lot faster. And the political will to enforce the law and to change immigration law after DACA for the Democrats is zero. Right. It completely disappears. If they get what they want, they're laughing all the way to the midterms. And so that's why, you know, Republicans, they've really got to make the case. Uh, Janice, one more thing. And uh, I'll let you respond. And then we've got to go to a break. Oh, okay. Um, no, I. Oh, are you good? Okay. If, if you're good, that's cool too. Thank you very much for calling in from Boston. Thank, I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Um, I'm gonna put her on the spot. Janice, what else do you have for me? Come on. Eight four four nine hundred two eight two five. If you want, uh, we'll get to some of our other callers after the the break, or maybe I'll be mid rant. We'll see. But eight four four nine hundred buck. Next hour, gotta talk about. 
text messages just disappearing, you know, FBI, FBI agents. Yeah, they just disappear. How can that happen? And I really mean, how does that happen? We, We are supposed to think that this is just all a coincidence now, folks. The left, the Democrats, the deep state, they are coincidence theorists. Too many coincidences. And I'm not talking about things where I'm saying, well, this could be true or that could be true. I'm talking about what is known, known facts. I'm not connecting dots that are far apart and require a leap of faith. I'm just looking at the outline of what is right in front of us. And it is not good for the trust that the U.S. Uh, that U.S. citizens should have for institutions, for rule of law, for the Democrat Party, for the media. We are on the cusp of what could be the biggest political scandal of my lifetime. And that's the one, only one that I can speak to. That'll all be coming up in the next hour. So stay right there. This vote should be a no-brainer. And it would be, except the Democratic leader has convinced his members to filibuster any funding bill that doesn't include legislation they are demanding for people who came into the United States illegally. What has been shoehorned into this discussion is an insistence that we deal with an illegal immigration issue. Mitch McConnell. Beat Chuck Schumer on this one, no question. It's a wipeout for the Democrats, everyone. They lost this. That's not how the media is going to talk about it. They're just going to say, oh, look, the government's coming back online. Yay, government. Yay. But the reality is that it came back online so quickly because Democrats were like, oh, crap. People figured it out this time. What are we going to do now? And Chuck Schumer's like, that's right. Take that, Chuck. I mean, Sorry, I meant Mitch McConnell to Chuck Schumer. Whatever. I got my characters mixed up in my head. He was basically trying to tell him, though, that victory is his. Mitch McConnell beat Schumer on this one. So you would think that this is a good omen going forward for what the trajectory of the debate over DACA is going to be. But I am concerned, as I have been telling you all along. I think there are... Plenty of reasons that, looking at this, we should think to ourselves, hold on a second. Why did Republicans agree that they would move on to the DACA issue as soon as the next couple of weeks in order to get the government funded again? Why? They should just say, no, we're the majority party. Fund the government or people are going to know that you're acting like a bunch of babies. I think the GOP may fool themselves on this one. Or, you know, it depends on who we're talking about. Some of them will fool themselves. Some are just being dishonest. But Democrats, they lost this round, but or they lost this battle, but the war is still on, so to speak. And I've been telling you about why immigration is so important and, and what the areas of it are that don't get nearly enough attention, because that's where I think we need to, that's where we need to focus if we're going to understand what's coming. You're going to have all the Republicans on the uh, that are in the mainstream GOP side of things. A lot of them are going to say, oh, look at this. We've got this great deal now with DACA. We're going to extend DACA protection for, you know, 
a year or two years or three years or something, and we got border funding. What does that mean? What does that mean? And why do they have to wait for this negotiation to happen? I think that there are, uh, look, I, I think that the legislative agenda here should be set by their majority party. I know it's a crazy idea. Why don't Republicans try to pass a bill that says that there, I just told you, 79% based on that poll. I mean, is that true? Of, is that a, a be-all, end-all poll? No, but it's a poll from, Har- from Harvard. Hello, Harvard. Uh why not put something out there that says that uh, they are going to end chain migration? Why not get rid of the visa diversity diversity lottery? Try to pass and, and fine. If Democrats are going to try to filibuster, make them. But let's let's have them do that. One of the biggest problems all along on immigration, and this stretches all the way back to you know the Romney. Obama era, 2012, the gang of eight, the gang of six, the gang of whatever. I mean, all, all these different recent failed efforts to get some kind of comprehensive immigration reform is that they want it to be a big package deal. They want it to be a big package deal on immigration. And when I say they, yeah, I mean Democrats and Republicans because they don't want anyone to hold them responsible for any one aspect of what's going on here. So that's how you get amnesty, but border funding, but this, but that, but here, but there, but pathway, but English speaking, but got to do back taxes and all this stuff. Because what's going to happen is that you're going to get the amnesty and nothing else. And then when we say, well, who do we hold accountable for this? Democrats and Republicans will be pointing fingers at each other across the aisle saying it's their fault, depending on what we're talking about. And nobody really knows. Why not? Why not do what? the most sensible approach to immigration dictates, which is take the issues one by one and say that we're going to go we're going to go forward with this in front of the American people. Make the case. You got Trump. You got his tweets. And then force Democrats to go to the mat against each of these individual items. And when they say, oh, no, because it has to be part of a DACA deal, say why? why? Why does ending chain migration have to be part of a DACA deal? One has nothing to do with the other. Why? You know, this is this is where we'll see, assuming that they force their hand now, what the real deal is. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. The Mueller investigation. The DOJ, Fusion GPS, all this stuff coming together in a way that many of us, many of us have deep concerns, uh, points to collusion and malfeasance, not between Trump and Russia, but among a whole group of government employees, political operatives, and even some of the media, perhaps, who were trying to create a way to nullify the results of the 2016 presidential election or prevent the election from ever happening between Trump and Hillary by making Trump have to step down. Here's the latest on this. It has come to light, as you know, in recent months, that there are some very clearly anti-Trump FBI and DOJ folks 
who were involved specifically on matters having to do with Trump, with Hillary's emails, with the most important and politically sensitive investigations of the last, well, at least the last couple of years, perhaps much longer than that. Now, the DOJ, FBI, are large places. FBI's got tens of thousands of agents. DOJ has, I don't know, something like 100,000 employees, I believe. DOJ's huge. We're not talking about general sentiment. We're not talking about office banter or hallway chatter between different agents. I understand this. People are people, right? You're allowed to have your thoughts about Trump or anyone else. I'm sure there are lots of FBI agents who, having worked with and known many an FBI agent in my day, uh, I'm sure they had lots of colorful things to say about Madam Secretary Hillary Clinton. Some were probably very amusing. What do you mean? Some were probably, you know, stuff that I wish I could have heard. But the point is, that's not what's at issue here. What, what is at issue is that when you're drilling down into the very small and powerful cadre, some would say cabal, of Department of Justice and FBI figures who were involved in both the Hillary email probe and the Russia-Trump collusion investigation and then the Mueller probe, you have a circle of never-Trumpers and a recent history of stonewalling from the FBI and the DOJ, not trying to turn over information to Congress that should be no big deal. So you had this Peter Strzok character who, and look, I people, I can tell, everyone really likes to... Uh, put it out there, you know, with his mistress, you know, uh, Page, right? Miss Lisa, what was her name again? I forget her name, but anyway. Uh, yeah, Lisa Page, his mistress. Okay, the guy was married and he was doing, but that's not really our, that's neither here nor there for what we're talking about. I mean, I think that we're focused on the investigation and these agents and how, or employees of the DOJ and how they would have, uh, acted in an anti-Trump fashion while in a position to make that really meaningful. But you have Strzok and Page exchanging text messages. Strzok wrote that Trump was an idiot, F Trump. You know, that that's very, that's disconcerting. But as we all know, the worst part of it was the insurance policy before you're 40 and that that conversation seemed to have been had in acting FBI director Andy McCabe's office. So at the very, very top of the organization, this is not two people at the water cooler having a chat overheard by somebody and then reported to somebody who works for the Washington Post, right? This is high-level stuff. And we've seen plenty of circumstantial evidence, we're going to put this in legalistic terms, that there are people from within the DOJ and the government apparatus that are willing to break the law to hurt Trump, right? The leaks about the Blinn, Kizilyak conversation, lots of leaks to different papers of classified information trying to hurt Trump. So somewhere there's people in the government who hate Trump, who have access to classified at a high level and are willing to give that to the media. And by the way, there are people who hate Trump, have access to classified and are involved in these investigations who hate Trump. Maybe we can start to put together, are, are, are some of these the same folks, maybe? 
Sally Yates, who should know the law well enough to know that it is not up to her to exercise her discretion as acting attorney general when it comes to the uh, when it came to the travel ban. But she wanted a grandstand because she's a never Trumper. She's a Democrat. These people are phonies. It's very important you know that. The same way that you have these phony journalists over at CNN and elsewhere who are acting like they don't have opinions and they're just playing it straight and right down the middle and just the facts. The same thing is true of a lot of civil servants and various government employees at the high level. I'm not talking about the folks that are just showing up, doing the job, and paying the mortgage. I was one of those folks, but without the mortgage because I never owned any property because I never had any money. But... I was one of those folks, okay? And I was just doing my job. I wasn't trying to play politics. I was trying to find terrorists. But we've seen now all this, when you add all this together, plenty of reason to think that there was foul play against Trump at the top level and that these individuals who try to hold themselves up as so uh, beyond reproach, nonpartisan, they're either lying or they're delusional, maybe a little bit of both. And then you get the latest news item from the last couple of days on this, which is that the Department of Justice had to notify Congress that there is a gap, a gap in the records of what has been requested here. And this is from the attorney general's office. Let me just read this statement was just released. Let me share this with you. Quote, six congressional committees made a request to the Department of Justice for FBI text messages between two FBI employees from July 1st, 2015 to July 28th, 2017, which the department agreed to produce as quickly as possible. The inspector general has been reviewing these texts based on allegations that department or FBI policies or procedures were not followed and that certain underlying investigative decisions were based on improper considerations. The Department of Justice agreed to produce those records as quickly as possible. After reviewing the voluminous records on the FBI servers, which included over 50,000 texts, the inspector general discovered the FBI's system failed to retain text messages for approximately five months between December 14th, 2016 to December 17th, 2017. Quote, we will leave no stone unturned to confirm with certainty why these text messages are not now available to be produced and will use every technology available to determine whether the missing messages are recoverable from another source. If we are successful, we will update the congressional committees immediately. End, End quote. Okay. A couple things jump out here, right? First of all, we're talking about text messages, everybody, from their work phones, their work devices that have a lot of sensitive and, as the FBI knows, subpoena-able information in there, right? Part of discovery. What FBI agents say to each other about a case can, can get called into court. They know this. I know this from when I was at the NYPD. They have procedures in place specifically meant to retain, you know, this is not just a normal company, right? This is the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And this is on their official work devices. They're going to tell us that there was just a glitch. There just happened to be a glitch. We fixed the glitch. I mean, they they really think that that's going to wash for the public. Now, again, put this in the context I gave you before. 
We're not talking about some problem that's FBI wide. We're not talking about, you know, uh, some messages that who cares about the specific text messages used on work devices between these two people who are now at the center of the storm of anti-Trump shenanigans at DOJ and FBI. Those messages all of a sudden disappear. Those messages are are not retrieval by the FBI. And it goes without saying, if you are hoping, you know, if you're under investigation by the FBI and you're hoping, sorry, bro, totes deleted like all my tweets or like all my text messages, like don't have them anymore. That's going to save your butt. You are going to be mistaken. Trust me, they'll have it. They'll find it. It's there. It exists on servers. FBI knows that. The digital footprint is for many investigations, the best friend that the law enforcement officers have. But we're supposed to think, back to my point about coincidence, being a coincidence theorist, this just just happens to come up here, right? Records directly related to the questions we're asking now. What else was said about this? What else were they saying? They already We've already seen some bad stuff between these two. What else was on the list? Oh, we can't tell you that because months of text messages on their work devices disappeared. Folks, this is the FBI. This is the DOJ. They have to retain work records. It's not a choice. This isn't like, oh, yeah, you know, whatever. Must be retained. It is a huge part of what their day-to-day obligations are when they're involved in investigations. Right. This is and, and you have to be very careful. I know a lot of law enforcement out there knows this. I knew this from when I was doing counterterrorism investigations, at the NYPD. You know, if you say, yeah, that guy, glad we're going to lock him up. He's a real you know, he's a he's a schmo or something. Guess what? That can end up in court. That could be a problem. You don't say dumb stuff like that. Oh, I would note, by the way, how dumb do we think now Strzok and Page are? Work devices, writing F the possible future president of the United States. You work in the executive branch. You out of your minds? I mean, are, are they hiring imbeciles at these places? The answer is yes. Actually, they are. There are a lot of very dumb people who work for the federal government, but that's a separate discussion. A lot of brilliant people, too. But that's, I'm not hearing enough of that from other people. This is not just like the messages. Just, this is the FBI. They have to keep the messages. They have to have access to this. This is not a question. This is not an option. This isn't like a, you know, an additional feature they'd love to have. And then there's one other thing I want to get into before we go on a break here. I haven't even talked to you about the FISA memo yet. Oh, yeah, we're going to go there. That's coming up in a second. And I'm hearing more and more from my sources on that one. And this is one where I I am really pulsing the sources. And and I'm going to ask my people who this is too important. I, I generally try not to push too much. You know, talk to people. I don't want anyone I know in government to ever, you know, get in trouble for anything. But I need to know whether this is real or not. This memo is real or not. You know, that's not that's not a national security issue. That's a the future of America issue. And the American people need to know is this. What does this memo really have? So I've been asking around. But before I get to that. So not only do you have these text messages disappearing right now, and look, maybe they'll find them all in a week and we'll be told it. But I'm allowed to at least take some of our time here on the show and say, oh, OK. This is not going to this is not going to fly. One more thing. Look at the timeline. My friends, look at what the timeline is here for when these text messages have disappeared. The 
December 14th, 2016 to May 17th, 2017. Who wants to just take a little stab at this? Who wants to throw out what would be kind of a crazy coincidence? What would be a crazy coincidence, this timeline? What if I told you that Mueller, the special counsel, was appointed to investigate Trump over Russia collusion on May 17th, 2017? Wow. Doesn't that seem a little bit odd? That just happened the, the day that... We find out there's a massive, possibly administration-ending investigation announced unexpectedly about Russia-Trump collusion. That's when all of a sudden, you know, that, that coincides with the, huh, it just seems weird, right? It just seems weird to me. I know you'd say, well, Buck, hold on a second. That's, that's, when, that's when the other side of the hole is, yeah, but... There's just too much here that seems to me like, hmm, something's going on. The whole run-up to the announcement, because you see the text messages after the announcement, they would know. Uh-oh, <laughs> right? Now it's real. Now there's somebody else who could pull our messages. You see what I'm saying? The gap is all the months leading up to the special counsel being appointed. Once the special counsel's been appointed, yeah, those text messages, sure. Because they realize, uh uh-oh. Now, this is assuming they don't find them all tomorrow, and they might. They might. But the coincidences are piling up too high. There's too much going on here that can't just be swept aside. Unlike on the other uh, side of this equation where they're saying, oh, you know, like... This guy met with a guy in London and, you know, he said something and it told some people. And then, you know, this guy talked to that guy and this other guy. And it's like a game of ridiculous telephone. Now, this is all real. And there's some stuff here that we need answers to. And I haven't even gotten into the FISA memo yet. That, that's coming up. 844-900-2825. You smell something fishy here? Is this FBI text message uh, blackout? Is this a big stinking fish or is this a, a nothing burger that... In a couple of days, we'll find out they have all the messages. What do you think? 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. We will get into the FISA memo in just a bit. Stay right there. Fake news better run and hide because the Buck Sexton Show is back. 50,000 text messages exchanged between FBI Agent Struck and DOJ or FBI lawyer uh, Lisa Page, DOJ lawyer Lisa Page, whatever. 50,000. That doesn't include the five months of missing ones. By the way, now look, you know, they're obviously they had some kind of connection. That's a lot of text messages. Uh, I, I don't I don't think I've ever texted anybody in my life 50,000 times. That I'm like, what is this? What is this FBI guy doing with all this time? That's a fair question to ask, I think. All right, Steve in Springfield, Massachusetts. Good to have you, sir. Hey, hi, Buck. How you doing? I'm good. Thanks for calling in. Um, hi. It's been kind of like eating at me. I heard a reference to it. Was does Donald Trump have the executive power to declassify the Nunez memo? Yes, he does. Because I think the need for making it public by far outweighs any national security. I mean, I mean, let's not forget that Obama pardoned Snowden 
which was probably as a massive uh, CIA breach. And uh, I, I think the public's right to know by far outweighs it. Um, Obama pardoned. Things, Obama I, didn't pardon. Obama commuted the sentence of Chelsea Manning. He did not pardon okay. Snowden. Just FYI. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, but, you know, that's cool. No, I just I just like to keep the facts straight. Go ahead. Oh, okay, cool. But but the thing is, like like I told a few friends of mine, you know, my relatives did not immigrate from Eastern Europe just to watch our D, our FBI devolve into a uh, a Gestapo and a KGB. Now I I am very, uh, how do I put this? I think it's very important, Steve, that we understand that this is. The leadership in these places tend to be political, and many of them are, in fact, political appointees. That's different from the rank and file. And I do think it will be un- it's, it's unfair if we find out, for example, and I think we might, that three or four senior FBI DOJ people were part of a conspiracy against the Trump administration and everything. And maybe it was 10. There's tens of thousands of people that work for the FBI, right? They're not grabbing people from their homes in the middle of the night for no reason and making them disappear, which is, that's that's what the Stasi would do. So I, I don't want us to go too far with tarring the whole institution when it's a few very senior people. Now, that's not to say a few very senior people aren't a big problem. They are. But I want to make sure that we try to separate that out. I mean, I still have, you know, I still have friends in some of these places, including friends who are Trump voters and, you know, are as dead set against the never Trump collusion nonsense as anybody else that I know. So... I just want to keep that. I wanted to keep that as part of our discussion. I will talk and thank you for calling in, Steve. I will talk about the uh, release of the memo coming up and what uh, what the different ins and outs of that are. Uh, But I am hearing and I've gotten to the point now where if this memo is not what it's supposed to be. Then the next time around, I'm just to say, I don't want to hear it. okay? because I've heard this now from lots of folks that this FISA memo is jaw-dropping. Oh, my gosh. What the heck is going on in the federal government? Why are they trying to destroy the Trump administration? That's what I'm hearing. So we'll talk about what we know about that so far right after this break. Other shows just talk at you. In the Freedom Hut, we have a mission. We fight for the truth in a team effort. And Buck is back with our next play. Can you tell us about this memo? What what exactly is it? Uh, It is essentially a set of talking points that the Republican Intel staff drafted based on the highly classified materials, which most of the Republican members were uh, forced to acknowledge, they've not even read. So they don't know how distorted these talking points are. They've made uh, common cause uh, once again uh, with Russian bots, because Russian bots are pushing their narrative out there. It's in, in a redux of the campaign. We have Julian Assange and WikiLeaks and Russian trolls and bots saying, you know, hashtag whatever the GOP uh, narrative is. Adam Schiff gives uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz a run for money on the mechanical, absurd, and idiotic talking points front. I mean, really, really good at the staying on message, blatant falsehood, just keep going, keep plowing through. What was all that stuff? What is Russia and WikiLeaks? like? Think about this. That has nothing to do with anything. The question, and I guess that was from Aaron Burnett, 
who is a famous TV anchor just because. I'm, I'm not really sure what the what differentiates her from a thousand other people in that job, but nonetheless, she makes a lot of money and is a famous CNN, well, sort of famous CNN anchor. Uh, but I think she was the one who asked the question. I don't know. Point is, it's about whether the memo should be released. Should we see if, in fact, the Fusion GPS dossier was used as the probable cause, in a sense, or as the the basis for the intelligence investigation opened up on the Trump administration or as a Trump campaign and then Trump administration. We should know that because right? that would be a very, very big deal. Simply put, it would mean that the media working with a deep state government apparatus at the Department of Justice and using something they got from the Hillary Clinton campaign took the spying apparatus of the United States and used it to mine for information and look for what could have just been politically explosive, right? We, we all assume, because they want us to assume, that they were on the hunt for criminal, criminal information. Here's something that I, will, I promise you, and again, I have lots of data points to back this up if we want to get into it, based on what we've already seen. If... By running the counterintelligence investigation, which is just spy, which is just means spying, means getting around normal Fourth Amendment protections. That's what that means. If by doing that, somehow the people in charge of this at the federal government had gotten information that that was political kryptonite for Trump, it would have leaked out into the media. So it didn't even have to be about criminality or conspiracy with the Kremlin or any of that stuff. It could have just been, look, think about it. Somebody says they, you know, one of Trump's top people says that they heard Trump use a, I don't know, a racial slur. Right. One of Trump's top people said any number of things that if you had somebody on tape saying it and it was then released to the press could have been lights out for the Trump campaign. Any number of things or at least would have really hurt the campaign. So that's another reason to get this counterintelligence investigation going because it allows you to mine through all the information and find what, you know, and if you're asking for, oh, Buck, that sounds crazy, I'd say Flynn Kizilyak. That made its way into the press to make Flynn look bad and get him fired, and oh, by the way, later on he gets charged with a crime for lying to the FBI about it. So they already did this. That wasn't there was nothing that was discussed that was a big deal, but it was released to the press to make Flynn or to to say that Flynn was a liar and to undermine him and to undermine the Trump campaign. So don't tell me that if there was and that was using counterintelligence methods. Right. Don't tell me that if they had found something else that was really good, it wouldn't have made its way out there because it was classified. Yeah, right. These people don't care about classified. They make a mockery of classified. I would also note a very important distinction, and this has to do with the mindset between emotional status Democrats and, generally speaking, the conservatives who work in the government, when there's a Republican president, you get these just deeply damaging leaks. Sometimes they'll just really damage national security, but they'll do it in a way that it embarrasses the White House, embarrasses the president. You don't have any of that with Obama. You know, this is like when we talk about media bias. It's so obvious, yet a lot of people pretend it's not there. There's a leak bias, my friends. 
where are the big damaging leaks about the Obama administration? In fact, you had the opposite of that. You had government apparatus helping Obama, targeting the Tea Party during with, with the IRS scandal, and then covering up that information. Oh, yeah, those servers, remember that? They were destroyed. IRS servers destroyed, literally chopped up in the, in the landfill, piece by piece, nothing you can do with them anymore. Oh, well, you know, it's just an accident. It just happened. Mechanically destroyed the hard drives that might have had information about the IRS targeting. Hillary Clinton wiped servers using the most advanced technology she could get her hands on. But, oh, you know, she didn't think there was anything wrong. You know, that's just norm, right? That's just like totes what people do. NBD. No big deal for the uh, Gen Xers and above out there. But, and now we've got the missing text messages, which we'll see if they find them. I think they realize they're going to have to produce these things, because if they don't, and, and that doesn't mean that somebody didn't try to delete them, I would know. Someone in the, you know, they, they may have got rid of them at, at the first level, hoping that, you know, they can wait this thing out or whatever. You know, pe- people are desperate. This is why the cover-up often is where you get caught, not the crime. People get desperate. They try to just do whatever they can to hide the facts. Doesn't mean that they're some genius mastermind when they're doing it. But okay, back to Schiff and the FISA memo here, because I know I got a little bit off topic of that for a second. Um, we have a right to know what's in there. The American people have a right to know. And the, the notion that, that the secrecy outweighs our right to know is just nonsense. It's crap. Here's a little secret I'll tell all of you. A vast majority of government classified information is wildly overclassified. A vast majority of it. A lot of stuff that is marked secret. And I, I mean, I've seen, I spent years of my life, right? I spent, gosh, I don't know, six, six years or so reading stuff that was from the open source all the way up to top secret and above. Right? Just reading stuff all the time. And a lot of stuff that was marked, you know, secret or stuff that's marked confidential, you'd say, meh. I mean, I kind of knew that. You know, it's not really. And it has to do usually with the source. How do you get the information is often the bigger deal, not what is the information. But a lot of stuff you'd see, you're like, I mean, come on, you know. You know? Confidential assessment. U.S. government property. Eagles fans are likely to get somewhat inebriated during the upcoming Super Bowl. I mean, you can mark that confidential because you got an inside source with the Eagles. But, you know, I think it's fair to say that there's going to be some heavy drinking at that Super Bowl, right? Not that I'm letting the Pats fans off easy either. I'm just saying people are going to be partying pretty hard, I think. So, gosh, it's like the Uncle Sam Bowl, too, the Eagles and the Patriots. Anyway, uh, a lot of information is overclassified, so start with that. Then you get to the next level here, which is, okay, so redact the information. Redact what you need to to protect sources and methods. Great. Do that. That's fine. I still want to know what's in there. I want to know what's in, these me- what's in this memo and what was done. And there's no good argument the Democrats have for not allowing that, but there's already been this party-line vote of, oh, no, the Democrats don't want this stuff to be out there, which... I guess they're just hoping against hope that we will forget about this. It'll move on. They can use procedure and hide behind it. For those who are asking, by the way, did Trump uh, or, or can Trump declassify? The answer is yes. But if Trump were to declassify this, and it's a little more complicated than that, but yeah, technically the commander in chief does have declassification authority. If Trump did it, can you imagine the outcry? Oh, he's he's 
he's under investigation, he's polluted the investigation, look what he's done, look what he's done, right? And then the whole story becomes not what's in there, not what's in the memo, but, oh, Trump is, you know, he's intruded on this, we need another special counsel to investigate Trump because he's, you know, blah, blah, all that stuff. And I know you're like, Buck, just hearing that from you makes me want to punch myself in the face, and I understand that, but that's what would happen. Trust me, it makes me want to punch myself in the face, too. Uh, so on the declassification side of things, it can be done, it should be done, it must be done. There's an obligation here. And people like Schiff have these pathetic reasons because they're just, they're just clinging to, uh, I don't know what, their, their last hopes here that somehow this won't become public knowledge. Why not allow people to look at it and let Americans make the decision for themselves about whether it's useful information or not? Well, because the American people, unfortunately, don't have the underlying materials uh, and therefore they can't see how distorted uh, and misleading this document is. Hmm. No, I think we can trust we can trust the American people to see this there, Schiff. But isn't that an interesting little moment there? You do get the sense from that statement that he knows that this would be bad if, I got, if it got out there. It's going to be bad for the Democrats. How bad? I don't know yet. But not having the underlying information, hmm. Uh, if it's bad, they could explain to us what that underlying information would be if necessary, right? There'd be some way that they could make this, they could put this in the proper context for us, I assume. I mean, the Democrats, all they do is spin all day, right? He had a little bit of, uh, he was showing his cards there a little bit. This, this memo is going to have to, it's going to have to hit him where it hurts with the Democrats, I think. And so we will have to see much more of uh, what's going on here. I'm going to follow up on this. There's no way that we should not see that memo. And it is incumbent upon everybody listening right now, if this falls out of the news cycle you know, pressure your congressman, make noise. Look, you could start a hashtag that can go viral on this, right? Release the memo. It has to be released. We have to see it. Because this could take the whole wind out of the sails of the Mueller probe and everything else. I mean, this could bring it all crashing down, basically. And if that were the case, it should come crashing down because it means it was all based on falsehoods. And I think it is. I think it was. All right. Got to uh, hit a quick break here. 844-900-2825. Buck, I'm going to talk to you about this Turkish incursion into Syria. No one else is talking about it, but I will. They know about this stuff. And uh, it's it's a big problem, folks. This could go away in a few days, or this could be the beginning of a uh, much messier Middle East than it already is. So we'll get into that and more. Stay with me. This just bums me out, but it's a an indicator of how crazy the the Russia fear mongering has really gotten. Back in my single days, as a young man in uh, the District of Columbia, I liked to uh, go check out a, a restaurant slash bar called the Russia House. Don't worry, it's not like you know an embassy or something. It's just a restaurant with some Russian theme to it. It's owned by, I think. Uh, uh, one of them's uh, one of them's American, yeah. Owned by a guy named last name McGovern. Okay, <laughs> so it's a restaurant, but it's got some fun, you know, vodka and flavor vodka and borscht and all this stuff. And I I went on a I feel like I went on a couple of first dates there, maybe even some second dates there. I mean I don't know. I definitely 
was a great spot. It's a really fun spot in in D.C. And they got a rock thrown through their window, and they've had problems because people are, uh, you know, they're seen as like somehow tied to Putin or something. The anti-Russia idiocy on the left and with Democrats, with MSNBC watchers, now means that a, a restaurant that's owned by at least uh, one American, I don't know if both of them are American or not, but one of the guys is American, is getting vandalized and there's like a pressure campaign on it because of Russia. And people are idiots. That's going to cost them $5,000 to replace the, the window because insurance, it's more expensive if they go through insurance. I just feel bad. I mean, I really spent some time in that place. I had some great nights in the Russia house. Me, Kami Bear, we really tore it up in there. And uh, there you go. Yeah, that's right. It would, you know, you know, many nights in there. I would uh, drink the different vodkas, talk to ladies, enjoy myself in the Russia house. So, you know, that makes me makes me annoyed that this is what's happening. But when you run story after story about how the Kremlin is controlling Trump like a puppet, you know, this is what idiots do. Social justice warriors, nothing is safe from them, right? Anything that gets caught up in the cause is subject to their tantrums. And so that's why literally a restaurant and bar called the Russia House is being vandalized. And there's like a kind of slow moving boycott against the place by some folks because Russia it doesn't get much dumber, folks, but here we are. The next time I'm in D.C., I'm going to open up a big, well, big for me, but a big bar tab at that place and do what I can. I'll, I'll buy a couple rounds for the Russia house just because I feel bad for those guys. I love that. By the way, if you're in D.C., great date spot. That was one of, that was one of my places. That's right. I used to go roll in the Russia house. All right. Buck's meandering down memory lane here. Dave in Tucson, Arizona. What's going on, Dave? Hey, uh, just listening to you while my wife, retired cop, and myself, and also a retired cop, we're working out and we're getting madder and madder as we're listening to you. Uh oh. Because, you know, uh, I, I did a lot of search warrants in my days in narcotics, and you know how sacred that act is. You swear and affirm your honor's on the line. You have to do it in good faith. And I see this, and, and it's, I'm waiting for a perp walk with these FBI guys. And I got to tell you, I think the American law enforcement community is just sitting back aghast that the Republicans even are piddling around. When you go to get a warrant, that's a sacred act. That's a critical, and that's part of our freedoms. And I, I tell you what, this is very frustrating to me. These missing uh, texts and everything you brought up over the last uh, uh, the whole part of your show has just gotten me fired up. I'll tell you. Well, well, I'm I'm glad that it's at least worthwhile content for you, Dave. And uh, and you and the you and the missus, thank you for what you do to keep or what you have done to keep the streets safe. And, yeah, it's true. I mean, they're, they're really harming. I think it's kind of ironic that Democrats were complaining so much about how Trump undermines institutions. But the greatest undermining of institutions that we have seen since Trump took office has been from people in those institutions acting on behalf of Hillary. Right. Comey and. This whole crew, this whole cabal. All right, yeah, Dave, thank you very much for calling in, man. I think we lost Dave there for a second. John in Mississippi. What's up, John? Hey, Buck. Um, I, I want to put to rest your concerns that this thing is overblown, the Spicer memo, the Nunez memo. I have a lot of confidence in Representative uh, from uh, Ohio 
Jim Jordan. And he says it's worth seeing. He says it's important. And so even if he's exaggerating, even if he's blowing it big out of proportion, I am still very interested in seeing uh, this memo that may reveal what some of these people in the Justice Department and the FBI were doing in order to use their offices for political means to undermine an election. Well, John, I'm 100% with you on wanting to see the memo, and I, I think and hope the memo is going to have some very relevant information that will be very damaging for the Russia collusion conspiracy nuts. But I'm just saying at this point, they better have the goods because we can't we can't have a, a head fake on this one. You know what I mean? But you're saying right. you're not worried about that. And I, and I appreciate that. I, th- I hope you're right. Exactly. That's exactly right. I'm, because I have confidence in Jim Jordan. I've been watching him for years. His integrity quotient is sky high. All right, John Shields High. Thank you for calling in. We're going to transition here in a moment into a buck brief on Turkey shelling our Kurdish allies. we got to talk about it. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. You are now entering the Freedom Hunt Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared and ready for the buck brief. A Turkish military operation into Syria striking a U.S ally on the ground not nearly enough media coverage of this uh, situation and it's one that could get much worse and very quickly here's what's going on so we have been working to defeat the islamic state in syria separate out the iraqi theater of that war for a moment we've been working with kurdish militia it's really a, a kurdish military force but we just We call it a militia because it's not technically Syrian National Army because the Syrian National Army belongs to the Assad regime. And there is no real Syrian government in the rest of the country. You have enclaves with their own forces. And one of the enclaves, a Kurdish ethnic enclave in Syria in the north and in the east, northeast of the country, uh, has this militia called the YPG. YPG has been very effective. The Kurdish are a stalwart ally of the Americans in Iraq and Syria, and but they also have a long st- and they have a long-standing tradition of bravery and prowess on the battlefield. The Kurds have been fighting against dictators for decades and beyond. Uh, the old Turkish saying that the Kurds, I'm sorry, the old Kurdish saying that the Kurds have no friend but the mountains is very apt. They are, in a sense, hill people. They are from the northern part of Iraq, where there are elevations and mountains, um, and they are also in the hillier parts of southeastern Turkey. In fact, the Turks refer to the Kurds as mountain Turks and have been uh, very slow to recognize Kurdish language and are very concerned that if there were to be a Kurdish state in Iraq or in Syria, the separatist movement along the Syria-Turkey border 
would only grow in strength and you could have a large portion of Turkey that all of a sudden wants to be independent and part of its own new nation. So the YPG militia, the, the Turks say, and I know this, there's no way to talk about this without getting into acronyms and ethnicities and a lot of stuff going on here, but the YPG militia is considered by the Turkish government to be indistinguishable from a group called the PKK or the Kurdistan Workers' Party. Kurdistan Workers' Party is a terrorist organization that has been a, has also been part of a separatist movement, right, trying to create a Kurdish enclave, a Kurdish state inside of Turkey, stretching back for many, many decades. And they have engaged in terrorist attacks against Turks and the Turkish government. We look at this and just say, okay, look, Syria is a nightmare. The Islamic State is making these terrible torture videos and raping women en masse and enslaving and raping children and cutting off people's heads and lighting them on fire. We just need somebody who can beat these evil psychopaths. And the Kurds are reliable. You know, you don't, isn't it interesting? You don't have Kurd uh, blue on green attacks, right? Or, or green on blue attacks, rather. You, you don't have Kurd insiders who turn on U.S. forces and shoot them down like you do with Pashto recruits in Afghanistan and Sunni Arab recruits in Iraq. and The Kurds have been reliable partners in Iraq and in Syria. And they are, along with the escalated air campaign of the Trump administration, for which, for which a lot of people don't want to give credit, but it is true. Trump came into office and said, I've got an idea. We want to beat these evil psychos of the Islamic State. Notice how we also get to call it ISIS now instead of ISIL. Let's call it ISIL. It was bizarre. It was this pedantic nonsense with the previous administration. Everyone except the president and like his top appointees in government were calling it ISIS. He had to call it ISIL. Anyway, the, uh, the Trump administration came in and said, let's accelerate the air campaign. Let's let the military officers on the ground, let's let the military uh, military chain of command closest to the action make determinations about what targets to hit and when to hit them. Let's take the fight to them and clear the in doing so clear the way for the Kurdish militia. And this is why now ISIS doesn't have Raqqa, doesn't have all this territory it used to have, and it's now just lodged into a an enclave, really, uh, a kind of no man's land between Iraq and Syria, part of the world that I've spent some time in, and it looks like Tatooine from Star Wars, just flat desert, as far as the eye can see. And they've even set up now a, a wilayat, a wilayat, which is the old Ottoman term. Those of you who listen to the Shields High podcast will kind of know what I'm talking about here. Old Ottoman designation, provincial designation, they called it a, a wilayat, and because that was the f- the previous caliphate, the Islamic State, has taken that terminology because they say they're the new caliphate. So they've taken up the mantle of the Ottoman caliphate of the Ottoman Empire, and they borrow the term wilayat, but they've created a Euphrates wilayat, which is really between Iraq and Syria. Uh, our friend Hassan Hassan even wrote a piece calling it Syrac, which I think is a good designation for it. And that's what they've been relegated to. And this is in large part because the Kurds have been clearing the ground while we clear as much as we can of the battlefield beforehand with our air power and then give them air cover. 
Now, if we want to have a continuation of the pressure on the Islamic State, as well as the other groups, by the way, other jihadist entities inside of Iraq, then we need to have a, a plan in place for dealing with these other players. You got Assad. His forces are still trying to take back territory. He still views Syria as his country, and his regime figures it's just a matter of time before they're going to take it back piece by piece. You have the Turks now intervening militarily, and intervening is probably too general a term. The Turks are blowing up our allies right now. Airstrikes, dozens of airstrikes all over uh, this portion of northern Syria in the region of Afrin, it's called, A-F-R-I-N. And these are our guys that we've been working with who have been taking the fight to ISIS. And the Turks are saying they're PKK. I mean, who really knows? But right now you've got a force that has been backed by and helped by the United States military and very effective in beating an evil terrorist entity in Syria that had spread the jihadist cancer into Europe and you had all the mass casualty attacks there. And we need a we need a strategy here, folks, because a political solution is way too neat and tidy a term. But some kind of political settlement has to or, or framework even has to be on offer here. You've got ISIS now in a in an insurgency phase. They have been pushed out of the cities and the main areas of control that they've had in the past. But remember, ISIS came out of an insurgency phase to begin with. It was al-Qaeda in Iraq back in the days of the U.S. invasion and occupation of Iraq. AQI was defeated thanks to the awakening and U.S. military uh, operations, the surge. They were pushed out of Iraq proper predominantly and, and into this corridor between Iraq and Syria and into a period of exile slash insurgency. But then they were able to come back as the Islamic State and seize whole cities and became this huge problem for us. So you have to keep the pressure on. But what do we do about the Turks? They're a NATO ally. You have a major U.S. presence at uh, Injerlik Air Base. You know, U.S. military, U.S. Air Force at Injerlik. And that's on Turkish soil. This is a delicate situation for us because we got to, at some level, there's a message that has to be sent here that if someone is, if a force is working with the backing and, and blessing of the United States military, and somebody else comes along and starts dropping bombs on them. We got to be like, hey, hold on a second. That's that's a guy you can't hit. We're the United States. Sorry, you got to back off on this one. Now I know the Turks would say, well, they're you know they're terrorists just like the PKK. We might have to have the talk with them where we say, defeating ISIS is a greater priority right now than anything else. And by the way, you know, are, are they really the same, or are they just come from a similar region and have similar views about Kurdish autonomy? Which, by the way, I am also favorable to. You know, I, I certainly would never advocate for violence against Turkish civilians or the Turkish people in favor of a Kurdish state, but I understand the political sentiment. And I understand that right now what the Turks are doing with the Erdogan government, Prime Minister, or President Erdogan, uh, what he's doing is not helpful. President Erdogan is allowing this to complicate matters already in a very beaten down and desperate part of the world. And so, you know, Syria is still just recovering from a civil war where you've got a half million people dead. The country's been ravaged, destroyed. And we finally have got ISIS on the ropes. 
in large part because of our Kurdish friends. We kind of abandoned our Kurdish friends to some extent in Iraq, and now I'm worried we're doing it again in Syria. This sends a message. Anytime we're going to try in the future to use indigenous forces for the purpose of defeating a jihadist terrorist entity, they can look at what happened here with the Kurds and say, hold on a second. Are we just going to be fighting and bleeding and dying alongside or in front of American air power? And then when things get a little rough politically, we can't count on them? This is uh, something that I, I really hope the Trump team spends some time focused on. I, I hope that Mattis has got this one. I've got a tremendous amount of faith in Mattis. I know a lot of people do. But uh, the Kurds are being left high and dry once again here. All right. I mean, look, if Turkey's got problems, with, if Turkey wants to sit down and we, we hash out an agreement where they've got specific individuals they want handed over for terrorist acts, that's one thing. But just to be bombing the crap out of the Kurds in northern Syria because they don't like the past actions of Kurds in Syria vis-a-vis the Turkish state, that's not that's not OK. That is not OK. I, I know I am I am pro Kurdish and I tend to be very critical of Turkey. I'll be I want to be honest with all of you about that. And, you know, I've met many wonderful Turks in my day. I've met plenty of Turks that I really did not like. So it's not about that. It's just the Turkish government, the Turkish state's actions, I find, much less helpful they can otherwise be. You know, they could have helped us open up a northern front in the Iraq war, but they said no, by the way, for their own domestic political reasons. But that's a, another story for another time. All right. I got to roll into a break here. Uh, 844-900-BUCK. And also, don't forget, Shields High is out today. The Fall of Constantinople Part 1 is the podcast. Uh, please do subscribe, by the way. I really love it when we get uh, new subscribers into the mix there. It's a little more, I'm taking a little bit more of a conversational approach to this history. We'll see if you like the storytelling better. It's a little less scripted, a little more kind of off the cuff, a little more like I do the radio show, because that's been some feedback that I've gotten. So we'll try that this time around, see how you all like it. Uh, but please do share it. You are the marketing mechanism for Shields High. There is nothing else. It is you listening to this show, you downloading it, and I think there was a little bit of a surprise in some qu- in some quarters when they found out that tens of thousands of you actively downloaded and listened to that show, Shields High, separately from this show. I'd like it to get to 100,000, though, not to be greedy, but it's free, so please do download it. Um, it's on iTunes. You can also listen on the iHeart app. Fall of Constantinople is an incredible story, and it's one we should all know. And once we, ta- once we tackle this, there'll be part two, which I think will be out next Monday, uh, where we finish the siege. And then we'll get into Malta and some of our, some of our classics, where I'll put some new twists on them. Uh, we'll be right back. A story day team that I think serves as a reminder for uh, all of us. I was talking to a friend who uh, was a little I mean, shaken up would be too strong a word, but was a uh, little rattled because he had just heard from a friend of his, and this is what had happened. There were some home invasions in uh, my buddy's general neighborhood, and it had become known that there was a a crew going around, a few guys who were moving in a van, and they were doing it in broad daylight, and they would even put, uh, you know, orange cones like they were doing some kind of work out on the street, and then they would go in and just brute force 
kick in the front door, break through the window, and then just loot and ransack the place. And they were doing this in the late afternoon, I suppose with the idea being that they were doing it when people were least likely to be home. Maybe they had been doing some casing of the establishments beforehand, you know, meaning looking at the routes and times of the individuals who live there. But as you know, home invasion is a very, uh, very serious crime, very frightening thing to just even hear about. My friend was telling me that, that his friend, actually, who was in the neighborhood, who, who knew because this has been going on for a while and they're really trying to catch this team. I think it's a few guys, three or four guys, um, all operating with this home invasion uh, MO of same time, same moving around in a kind of a grayish van or something or beige or, you know, whatever, a, a nondescript van like they're doing work. And then they're just going to these homes, just breaking, destroying and grabbing everything they can. And my friend's buddy was home, was home with his, I think, 12-year-old daughter when he heard, uh, he said his, the daughter thought that her, her dad at first was knocking on her door because the banging was so loud. The banging was them kicking in the front door. They got in the door and then... The father obviously grabbed the daughter, went into, they went to the bedroom, locked the door, called the police, and then I think shouted down over the intercom system in the house that the police, that they were home and the police had been called, the police had been called. Now, the police response was just under seven minutes, which was pretty good, especially this is not, a, this is not in a city. This is out in a kind of suburban, suburban area. Um, but I, I asked somebody, I said to him, well, does, does your friend, I don't know his friend. I said, does your friend, does he have a, a firearm in the house? He goes, no, I don't, I don't think, I don't think he does. And then I asked my friend, I said, well, you know, you're home. You've got a wife and a couple of small kids. I, I know you love hunting. I've been hunting with you, right? I mean, I've, I've literally been out hunting with this guy before. So I know he, you know, is firearms friendly, so to speak, right? I ask him, do you have it? He goes, no, I've, I've only got a, you know, a, a 22 caliber rifle for target practice. I don't have anything that's, you know, for, and I said, well, I mean, in a pinch that could work, but I mean, it's bolt action. And I, you know, I think he'd want something a little, with a little more punch better than nothing. But, and I said, you know, you got to get a 12 gauge. I mean, that's, and I know a lot of you right now are like, buck home defense, get an, he lives in a very blue state. The best he's going to get is a, is a shotgun. I mean, that's uh, very hard to get a uh, handgun permit in that state. So the best he's going to do is, is a shotgun. You can get a shotgun there. Um, I said, you know, you got to get a shotgun. Because, he said, look, I'm not, I'm not advocating you got your, you know, this guy, for example, who was there. I mean, can you imagine? There during the home invasion, 4 o'clock, nice suburban neighborhood, you know, not a lot of crime, but you never know. Four o'clock in the afternoon, someone kicks in his front door, a whole team of guys. And they've got it set up so it's like they're doing work, so people perhaps aren't going to think anything of it. That's the whole scheme. But he's there with his daughter. Thank God the cops get there, you know, and, and kudos to them. Under seven minutes, given the, I, I've been in the area, I know the area, that's pretty fast. In New York City, for a felony call like this, it's under five minutes. I forget what the exact response time is, but it's quick. There's, what, there's the cops showing up for a noise complaint. There's the cops showing up saying, someone's kicking in my front door. I'm scared. I'm here with my daughter. They move. Here and they don't mess around. I mean, 
I'm sure it's true of cops all around the country. They get there as fast as they can. But I said, you know, I'm not advocating go downstairs and, you know, turn into commando here and, and take matters in your own hands, although that's also depends on your comfort with, you know, he's got, if you've got a child there with you, I think you probably stay right there and don't want to move. But, you know, that's now you're getting into the details of the situation. I said, you got to be able to at least, you know, uh, rack around in there. I mean, you got to at least be able to have your 12 gauge and keep your, you know, keep your child or whomever with you while you call the cops. Because I, I got to say, I would not have wanted to be in that room for those four or five minutes after yelling, we're home, we've called the cops. Fortunately, the guys took off, so nobody was harmed, nobody was hurt. But I, it's just a reminder, folks, you know, you, you hear this stuff here and there, but this this one, it, you know, this, this was one of those stories. could have gone very bad. And my buddy was like, I think I'm going to be getting a shotgun on the way home from work today. And I said, yeah. Not just for clay pigeon shooting, my man. Go get one. We'll be right back. So I had a really exciting weekend team of, you know, deep diving into some history. The Fall of Constantinople Part 1 podcast is up on iTunes. You can listen on the iHeart app. Uh, I would be willing to bet very few of you were ever even exposed to the storyline of what happened in that city. There's a political correctness angle to all this. I want everyone to be clear on that as I go forward with some of these history podcasts under the rubric of Shields High. One of the reasons that you may come upon these stories, even as someone who's incredibly uh, well-read and knowledgeable, is that in most history classes, certainly in a European, you know, I took AP European history, for example, in high school, because, you know, I'm fancy, and didn't even touch on this stuff. It's a, it's a footnote at best. You know, Byzantium, the Eastern Orthodox Christian Empire, what happened there, because it's helpful for the narrative of skipping right to the colonial period, meaning that the Western European countries went out and seized control, pillaged, ransacked, and enslaved all these other countries all over the world during the colonial period and are therefore responsible for the problems of, well, the third world, the developing world, but more specifically, uh, the Muslim world. If you actually know the history and you see that, one, the Muslim world, particularly the Ottoman Empire, was built on slavery. It was a slave trade that lasted longer covered more territory and enslaved more people than anything else in history with the possible exception of the Roman Empire, right? But it was a vast slave trade, including many, many Christian whites who were enslaved over the course of a few hundred years. That'll be a whole podcast, maybe even a podcast series unto itself, the white slave trade uh, under the Ottomans. But that's why you don't really hear these backstories, and this is why I think it's valuable to pull it together in a podcast format, storytelling, giving it to you so you can share it with other people and you can hear it yourself. Because I'm somebody who, I studied Mideast history in college, as well as in high school, but in a more serious way in college. And even there, there were these gaps. It goes from uh, the rise of Muhammad in the Arabian Peninsula to the Crusades. It's just kind of, woo, Crusades, comes out of nowhere. These evil crusaders. And yeah, there was brutality and violence on all sides here. The world was a very different place then. But you'll notice that there are these uh, these leaps that happen 
and something will, or some bits of history are often skipped over. And that's why I'm telling you about Charles Martel, about the fall of Jerusalem, which I know you're all familiar with, but just to get back into it, the fall of Constantinople, the siege of Malta, the Battle of Lepanto. These are the, the stories that get lost in, in history because they're all stories, well, not all, but they touch on and are the result of Islamic conquest and expansion. Without that, you don't have these battles that I'm talking to you about. And that changes the whole dynamic then for Europe and America's uh, blaming, the the blame that we get for the state of the world today. For any of these countries, particularly Muslim countries in in the Arab world, but elsewhere too, they'll say, oh, it's a legacy of colonialism. That's why they have all these dysfunctions and problems. Anyway, that's... So, so that's one. Uh, I was talking about my weekend, and I got on this whole separate, whole separate line of uh, of discussion here. But I also did some Netflix watching. Miss Molly was back in town. She was in Hawaii for work. Aloha, love Hawaii is amazing. She loved it too. It's it's a it's incredible to be in a place that's so beautiful, and and you're still on U.S. soil, and a really sizable concentration of U.S. military power there too. So you know. In case some foreign country gets a little uppity, you got the United States Navy and, and Marines and military uh, in in considerable density, given the uh, size of, of the Hawaiian Islands right there for you. But Hawaii's amazing. She's gone this week again, so I'm in bachelor mode, which means that I throw stuff everywhere. You know, it's like a Tasmanian devil or, or the actual Tasmanian devil from the cartoons. Real Tasmanian devils are like small weasels basically but the one from the cartoon would create these you know you know and go all crazy that's what my apartment looks like right now uh, and then the day before she comes back i make it spick and span i mean it is clean right there's nothing left on the ground nothing left anywhere but i watched some television uh specifically netflix and i've said this before i'm i'm just gonna come clean with you guys here i watch some pretty especially when i'm doing a little bit of cooking, or I kind of half-watch some things. So I don't use the good shows for this. I use the the background shows. Now, I've already seen all of Seinfeld, so I'm on my fourth or fifth iteration of that, so I'll put on some Seinfeld in the background. But more often than Seinfeld, I'll actually use a show called Friends. And I was thinking about it over the weekend because I had seen a piece on Friday. I think it was Kyle Smith from National Review wrote it. And Kyle's a very good writer, very good film critic. And he talked about how there is a backlash against the TV show Friends, which is among the most successful and valuable television shows in syndication ever. More money in syndication or more money in residuals in syndication than even Seinfeld. And I think it's behind like Baywatch and actually Hercules, the legendary journeys with uh, Kevin Sorbo. It did remarkably well around the world. It has a global audience, but I digress. So Friends is this show that I, I look, it's I'm a New Yorker. It takes place in New York. They live in the West Village and it's fantasy land stuff. You've got these uh, roommates who are going in and out of these relationships. Everybody's funny. Everybody's beautiful. And everybody doesn't really have to worry all that much. Right? I mean, that the apartment for the set of Friends would be one of the biggest New York City apartments I've ever seen. And they have jobs like uh, paleontologist and coffee barista. Not exactly 
raking in the big bucks with those. But the backlash against Friends, a show that debuted, I think, over 20 years ago, is that the, the humor is, you know what's coming here, folks. This is why I started thinking about political correctness in the beginning of this segment. The humor is uh, misogynist, they say, homophobic, full of body shaming and white privilege and transphobia. So they are pulling apart this show now. The social justice warriors are looking at one of the most popular television shows of the last 30 years. And they're saying that it is uh, unacceptable for all these different reasons. And it just reminds me that nothing, even in the arts, is sacred to these social justice warriors. I remember when Robin Williams, rest in peace, when he passed away, there were some retrospective uh, clips that were pulled together of Robin Williams' funniest moments. And even those clips, because he does accents and he does impersonations of people. And Robin Williams is probably the greatest comedic genius of my generation. I know for the generation before me, people might say Richard Pryor. They might have, uh, you know, I mean, Eddie Murphy in his prime is certainly up there, too, for my generation. But Robin Williams is definitely in the top five or ten. And that upon his passing, we couldn't even celebrate his work fully as a result of the newly found sensibilities of the social justice warriors. I mean, this is crazy. right? Robin Williams wouldn't be able to do what he does now on television without running afoul of the PC police. And even Friends, a show about... Young people in their 20s in New York City, it's all, it's like one big funny fantasy, right? There's nothing realistic about the show at all, but it's well-written and it's clever and it's, it's not, you can kind of turn your brain off. There's a little bit of a, uh, you know, it's not like you're watching something that's intense. You know, Miss Molly loves to watch these shows where they like bring in the blue lights and they're like, have we found the killer yet? And they're like, well, we found, you know, we found one head over here and we found a leg over here. And I'm like, ah, Molly, why do you watch this stuff? She's very good at being a detective, though. She always knows who the killer is in the beginning. Uh, But I look at this moment in time here where you have the social justice warriors continuing to to gather and to to push even further. And we we do need to address this as a society and say, you know, it's just it's just too much. They're not they shouldn't be allowed to kill humor. They shouldn't be allowed to eradicate fun. And they're doing a pretty good job. There's a lot of stuff that, for example, I would love to do on this show that I can only talk to close friends and family members about without fear of reprisal. And I just mean in terms of doing funny accents or doing impersonations of public figures. But I can't do the impersonation unless it falls into a very narrow categorization. Essentially, I can make fun of uh, Caucasians who are male and Republican Political figures who are Caucasian and, you know, maybe I can get away with female, too. And other than that, it has to be in very broad terms, right? I can't do regional accents. I can't do uh, different ethnic accents. All of that is off limits. And at some point, when are we allowed to say that we laugh together? We're laughing with. We're supposed to be laughing together. It's supposed to be fun. It's not punching down, right? I know the difference between punching down and having a good time. And it's very it's very bothersome. You know, here I am on radio and I feel I feel constricted 
and anybody else does. And a lot of what would have been okay, you know, 10 or 20 years ago will get you fired now. So people say, oh, well, you remember when so-and-so did that bit 20 years ago, 15 years ago? He's a superstar. So, yeah, if he, if he did that now, he'd be fired. He'd be off the air. And this is the anti-creative impulse that is so profound among the social justice warriors now. Not even friends gets past the radar. And if you look back, you'll find anything. I mean, heaven forbid they figure out how many times in the James Bond movies. James Bond used to, you know, yes, I'm just going to, darling, I think it's time for me to uh, go do what I'm doing. And, and he would just slap women across the face. It happened in a couple of, a couple of movies. Which is a terrible thing, but, you know, hey, he's a fictional character. He didn't actually slap anybody. I'm, I wonder at what point we just go through what the what the Soviets had for a while, where they were just erratic, or, or in totalitarian Islamic societies, right, what the Taliban does. Just start getting rid of stuff that you find too offensive. Don't even critique it. Just get rid of it. W- wipe it from the public record. Very troubling. I, I know you're saying, Buck, I hate friends and I don't care about that show. Fine. Although some of you secretly like it. Don't lie. Uh, but this is, it's a troubling trend. That's all. And it, I was reminded of it this weekend. All right, let's get into some Team Buck roll call right after the break. Stay there. All right, everybody. So it's time where we get to hear from all of you. We didn't do it Friday, so I've got a lot stored up in the Team Buck bank. Here we go. Team Buck, it's time for roll call. <laughs> I don't know why. I get a kick out of playing that one every time. I kind of, I kind of like that one. So... All right, here, here we go. A lot of messages coming in from all of you, and I am very thankful for them, so let's get into it. Uh, we have Rick with the following, writing in from Ohio. I'll be listening to you on radio at 6 p.m. I'd like to know why everyone talks around why we can, why we can get answers on, I think he means can't, the Mueller investigation. He has never been investigating the collusion with Russia. It's just a diversion. They're just buying time so they can scrub themselves of all the facts of their collusion and lawbreaking for Clinton's sake. It's clear that was all manufactured for that purpose. Well, Rick, I I think it's becoming more clear. I think we are getting closer to that than we uh, ever have been before. But I'm not I I, I couldn't yet take it to court, so to speak. All right. uh, Corinna writes in. Uh, where's the latest Shields High podcast? Corinna, it was like an hour late today. It's supposed to go up usually at 3 Eastern, but had to do some last-minute audio edits to it. But the fall of Constantinople Part 1 is up on iTunes. For whatever reason, people seem to like, I just based on feedback, they like Charles Martel and that story a little more than the fall of Jerusalem or the conquest of Jerusalem. Uh, I'm hoping that you think the fall of Constantinople is the best one, yet it's certainly... Uh, among the most important stories that I will be telling all of you for what it meant for the future, uh, for the future of Christendom as well as Islam. Dave, with the following, why is Schumer allowed to address the media unchallenged and mischaracterize the power situation and negotiation? It's like Bush and Pelosi all over again. Well, Dave, Schumer can say whatever he wants, and he certainly does, but that, in this case, I think has been... Defeated. I think Trump is the reason I was saying it all along. I think Trump has been the X factor here and it has changed the game. The Democrats can't get away with now what they used to. Uh, Chadwick uh, writes in with the following Buck, 
Do you take requests for buck slap? The, the, uh, <laughs> can you please deliver an epic buck slap of Evan McMullen? He's basically the grossest example of the never Trumpers and a useful idiot that leftist MSM love to trot out. I remember you having him on your show and him presenting himself as a conscientious conservative. He's an imposter. It's time for uh, him to take it's time for him to. Uh, this is not really Chadwick. We had a little bit of a typo here. I think I don't, it's time for any him to take his race baiting. Never Trump sideshow and join the join the Democratic Party. OK. Uh, yes, on Chadwick. Uh, I or Yes, on Evan McMullen. I agree with you. Chadwick, that he has gone over to the other side. Now he is doing the left's work for them. And uh, I guess we'll pull some of his audio out. You know, I tend to I tend to uh, lay off some of my former government brethren um, out of a sense of, I don't know, you know, formerly formerly from the same team. Uh, But in this case, I yeah, he's he's gotten pretty, pretty irritating. I I have to agree with you, Chadwick. So I'll, I'll look for an opportunity to. Remember, I go after people's content. I don't like to make fun of, you know, their appearance or their, you know, their their wives or any of that. I leave that to other people who are uh, ungallant and don't have enough thoughts and content. So they go for the nasty stuff. Uh, John writes in spreading. Oh, wait, no, he gave me this one. Shields high, Buck. I love the first history podcast. Eager for more. Recently, I went to see Phantom of the Opera. Before the show started, they said, please turn off your cell phones. Goes right along with what you said about Georgetown basketball. And I'm spreading the word about the Shields High podcast. John, the reason I haven't gone to the movies is because people always ruin it because they act like savages and they talk on their cell phones. And that's why I haven't yet seen. I uh, haven't yet seen the. Um, uh, the. Churchill movie, which I've been intending to see. And I found out today I know somebody who can get me a screener of it. So, yeah, I don't think I'm going to make it to the movies. Uh, Let's see. We have next here. Hold on a second. Oops. Mark with the following. Good day, Buck. I am a homemaker and trying to find a good name to brand a home mead maker. I'm sorry. Mead. Uh, And I'm trying to find a good name for my meads. I thought of Freedom Hut Meadery since I don't have an actual location besides my home, and it's more of a state of mind, but remember that you use the phrase Freedom Hut with your show. I haven't actually listened since you moved to your show later, so with your permission, I'd like to use the Freedom Hut for my meads and brand them under Freedom Hut Meadery. Uh, I mean, I I don't know if I technically have the authority to do this or not because I work for a big company, but... Sounds great to me, Mark. <laughs> I want to try some of your. I want to try some of your mead. Uh, so there you have it. Good luck to you with that. That sounds really, really cool. Cheryl, with the next one, you will love Longmire. Great character portrayals and Justified is another great show. Enjoy your weekend. That's actually from Joel, the husband of Cheryl. Uh, yeah, I want to check it out. I'm I'm hoping that this will be a show that I can get into the next few days. By the way, I hadn't finished the. Hell on Wheels show. I was stuck on season five, and I kind of got distracted and never finished it. It's a pretty good show. I, you know, it meanders a little bit here and there, but overall, I have to say, it's been a it's been a worthwhile a worthwhile viewing experience for me. I thank you for everyone uh, for all of the very helpful 
suggestions and commentary on different Netflix shows and all the rest of it. So uh, appreciate that. Uh, like Francis here for your Netflix queue at person of interest and blacklist. I promise you will want to binge binge. Uh, uh, all right, Francis, I will uh, give that a shot. I'll have to go and check it out. Steve just finished Friday's podcast justified on Hulu or Amazon outstanding and love to binge watch that one Longmire again outstanding and sorry to see it end after season six another try is Hugh Laurie chance on Hulu very interesting shields high and enjoy the weekend well thank you Steve I've got enough TV shows in my queue now to certainly get me through the winter if not more than that Uh, so your suggestions are all very much appreciated do remember if you want to send me a note for Roll Call, uh, send us your thoughts on the show. You can do it at facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Also at officialteambuck at gmail.com. That's officialteambuck at gmail.com. I've got a whole bunch of shows planned for you this week. Please check out our history podcast up on iTunes. And you know the name because it's also how we close out the show, Shields High.